You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. So good evening. Thank you for joining us uh, for this webinar tonight, the Physiotherapy Response to Managing Hospitalized Patients with COVID-19. I'm Jonathan Quello, a private practice orthopedic physiotherapist in Vancouver and the physiotherapy lead at the UBC Division of Continuing Professional Development within the Faculty of Medicine. And uh, I'll be serving as moderator for tonight. So this webinar is the first physiotherapy-specific webinar in a series of COVID-19 webinars that the UBC Division of CPD, or Continuing Professional Development, is delivering to support a multidisciplinary healthcare audience in both urban and rural practice during the COVID-19 pandemic. And tonight, we're extremely fortunate to have three very knowledgeable physiotherapists, Amy Ellis, Jill Longhurst, and Simone Grunig, for this session, who will share both their knowledge and experiences with respect to managing hospitalized patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. We have uh, 60 minutes allocated for tonight's webinar, but depending on how many questions we receive, the panel has agreed to extend the session by up to an extra 30 minutes to answer as many of your questions as possible. And I know that's a lot of me talking, so I'd now like to have the panelists introduce themselves, where they work, and then outline how COVID-19 has affected their practice. Uh, if we could start with Amy, and then Amy, if you could please pass it on to the other panel members. Hi, my name's Amy Ellis. I'm one of the clinical supervisors at Surrey Memorial Hospital here in British Columbia. Uh, my team that I supervise is actually the critical care team and the nephrology team. Our experiences that were right there on the front line, Surrey Memorial Hospital is one of the um, COVID cohorts. Uh, so we have both um, medical patients, but we also have a critical care cohort. So uh, part of our experience of um, what's happened is uh, the navigating the change is that everything feels like it's changing every five minutes and it's kind of felt like a, a very big tidal wave that kind of shifted. It was like, oh, this is on the horizon. Oh, we have one patient. We have two patients. We have a cohort um, and how everything's kind of evolved. So I've been involved in that uh, both on the front line as actually somebody treating these patients in both critical care and the medical wards, but also navigating it as a supervisor, how to support my team through it and how to plan and, and how do we face an unknown new novel um, virus that, how do we face that not knowing it? So looking at the research um, and also getting a hold on, on what is our physio toolkit and how can we approach this from a severe problem perspective? So that's my experience. I've been doing lots of lit reviews. We now have experience with clinical patients um, and seeing as they come through what we've predicted and we'll chat a little bit more about the actual expectations and what we've seen. Um, and just really finding solace in our role as physios and something that can feel very Dairy, but also being able to reflect that, that we have something really positive and, and um, important to bring to the situation in making it better. So that's been kind of one of my take-homes in this uh, shift as we, as we feel it. 
um, and also looking into we've had lots of opportunities to network and and this is a great opportunity of uh, seeing the conversations that are being started and being had at, at all different levels both here on site within the health authority and regionally and provincially um, holding on to and the opportunities for the conversations that are happening is the other thing that's kind of shifted and I, I'd, I'd like to see that continue. I'll hand over to Jill. Hi, so I'm Jill Longhurst. I'm the, the regional physiotherapy educator for Vancouver Coastal Health. So um, based out of uh, VGH here in Vancouver, I've been in that job for about a year. I've been a physio for about 17 years if I do the math, which is a bit terrifying. And um, most of my background clinically was in um, critical care and acute care. So um, yeah, I mean, we obviously have seen a lot of changes um, since things have kind of started rolling out. The first thing really that hit me was I coordinate uh, student placements. And so all the student placements were um, first suspended and then canceled. And so that was a big shift look, dealing with, well, you know, getting everyone organized and, and out safely and realizing that, yes, you know, it was kind of time to, to look at that. After that, um, we were also about to, to roll out um, some work around electronic documentation. And so these things, two things that had been massive priorities, like I was supposed to drop everything to work on, were then just all of a sudden off the table and everything that I've been doing has been COVID-focused since, you know, middle of March. So... In the beginning, staff really needed information. There was very little information out there, and so people wanted information. So my role was to, to try to find it, to get it to them. Now, there's a lot more information out there. So it's how do we, you know, kind of collate that, synthesize it, get the information to people that they need and pull out the pieces that are important. So done a lot of work around um, our practice guidelines and, and direction to staff as to, you know, how to practice safely, how to practice most effectively. Um, like Amy was saying, you know, there's a lot of connection between sites that we hadn't seen before. So even us within the health authority between the sites and then between the health authorities across the province. So there's been a lot of um, connection there that we've been working on. And it's been busy. I know some people clinically are if they're in areas where, you know, surgeries are, are slowing down or admissions are less, they're, they're kind of waiting a little more, whereas um, I've found I, I'm doing more work, you know, than I have in a long time. Not that I, I, I was working hard before, but it's, it is, yeah, there's, there's been a lot that's, that's been quite time critical and, and needed to be done. So, yeah, that's sort of where, where I'm coming from, my perspective. Okay, so I guess it's me now. Um, my name is Simone Grunig. Uh, I'm kind of joining the, um, Jill and um, Amy, who are kind of in the thick of it clinically uh, in big hospitals in Vancouver. Uh, my background is I am a physiotherapist, uh, same amount of time probably as uh, Jill and Amy, kind of around that 17, 20-year mark. And um, I have a couple of hats. I work for Vancouver Coastal Health on a part-time basis, uh, community care, but I've shifted through kind of all the acute care sites um, uh, within some large centers in Toronto and then out here in Vancouver. Um, currently working in the downtown east side, so in British Columbia, it's a priority area where we're kind of monitoring 
what's going on with that patient population with COVID-19. So I'll touch on a little bit of um, community and thoughts around community care. But the, the other roles that I, I um, uh, perform in is I am the lead cardiorespiratory instructor at the University of British Columbia in the physical therapy department. I have been in that role since 2008-2009, um, uh, so um, have been very busy um, trying to get the students uh, into online learning uh, and shifting, working with the department and shifting curriculum to meet the needs of kind of the next generation of physiotherapists and um, uh, support them through the transition of this uh, pandemic and their learning. Um, so I've been, like Amy and Jill, um, reading a lot of literature and I'm kind of absorbing uh, what's going on from a COVID-19 uh, practice standpoint. My also, my um, other role is I'm the chair of the Cardiac Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And so have been very busy at a national front trying to get uh, information and resources out to therapists across the country to support that knowledge translation that um, they're asking for. So really happy to join Amy and Jill in the discussions, uh, answer questions, and kind of facilitate some uh, clinical reasoning um, and our experiences um, in currently uh, in specifically in Canada, Vancouver, British Columbia area with uh, with COVID-19. So hopefully this can be a good resource for everyone that is on the phone and, and start some of the, the thought and question asking that we need to kind of facilitate our skills to, to the best of our ability. Great. So thanks for that, you three. Um, so then for the panel portion of the webinar, we've selected a few key topics that we're going to have our panelists touch upon and sort of summarize their key points, and then we'll transition into the uh, Q&A portion. So to start, to start with, Amy, could you uh, talk about the pathophysiology of COVID-19 and its pertinence to physiotherapy? Yeah. So what I've, well, a lot of what's gonna, um, I'm going to chat about in this part I've, is part of the, the work that I did in the initial phase of kind of it's coming, where were we going, and that was um, trying to work through what is our potential role and, and what are these patients likely to look like? So some of the, the symptoms relevant to physiointervention intervention um, that we see is um, that they may have fever. Generally, they're having a dry, non-productive cough. I will chat a little bit more about this later on when we get into what they're looking like in, in critical care. Um, there's only sputum present in about 23% of admitted patients. We're also seeing myalgia and fatigue. Um, in, small, in proportions of the patient. What is quite interesting and, and very relevant to what we're seeing in the um, clinical setting and the timing of our physiotherapy interventions is that there's a gap between when the patient initially starts to show um, symptoms and when they start to have uh, respiratory distress and failure. And it's actually interesting in Dr. Henry's um, update today. She was talking about that day five, six, seven, and up to day eight is a really crucial time period where we start to see which sort of category the patient's going to land up in. So we're seeing mild, moderate, and severe cases um, at, as part of what we were anticipating. Um, what we're actually seeing is a, a much more um, heavier 
a lot more mild patients. So those are people that are often not being tested, the people that are not needing admission to hospital. Um, and then within our hospital admissions, um, a lot of what the moderates would have gone home are going home fairly quickly as um, other things that are keeping them in hospital. So I'll chat a little bit more about that. Um, and then it's at that um, day seven, eight, that we're starting to see the shift into the patients that are going to have the severe disease. So it's not that they get tested and now they're severe, it's that they, they have this delay. And um, what we were initially seeing is people coming in to emerge with other things like headaches and the myalgia and, and other symptoms bringing them in. They may have been tested at that time and then returning to hospital with respiratory distress and then needing critical care intervention. So from a, we'll, I'll, ch I'll chat a little bit more about that, but it's, it's really important to be aware of that, that gap. And then patients that are needing critical care admissions, we're seeing um, fairly long admissions, up to 20 days. Um, some of our ventilated patients are actually sneaking up on, on higher numbers, um, and that's opening more questions around um, do we need to be doing tracheostomies. So what we are also seeing and to be aware of is acute kidney injuries. Uh, we're seeing acute cardiac injuries. So we're seeing in, this, in the critically ill patients uh, multi-system failure. Uh, we're having patients on CRRT, which also adds complexity into their picture. Um, and then so we really need to, to be aware of how all of these pictures, all of these come together into what we might see from a physio perspective. Uh, what we know about the virus is that it's coming in through the ACE2 receptor cells, and that's part of the discussion about why patients with diabetes and hypertension may be uh, more susceptible to getting it. Um, what we do see, though, is that there's increased concentrations of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines that uh, progress into what they're calling a cytokine storm. And it's the cytokine storm that actually affects um, multiple systems that causes the primary um, lung injury. So you will have heard them talking about ARDS, that is an ARDS picture. Uh, but what we're seeing is a different type of ARDS. So in um, the typical picture, what we usually see is, um, and there's actually an interesting article recently by Gastononi who was one of the leading um, authors around proning patients and ARDS, and he's also based in Italy. So he had a really interesting article in where he was talking about wet versus dry ARDS. So in the more typical wet ARDS, we're seeing um, more exudative picture, more fluid shift into the lungs, whereas what they're seeing in COVID-19 is a more dry ARDS, more inflammation, um, it's slightly different. It affects the um, compliance of the lungs in a slightly different way, um, and we're seeing the way that our physicians are approaching ventilation has also shifted. Um, so it's not. It it is a form of lung injury, but it's not typical to, to other forms of ARDS uh, that we've seen before. Um, but it's this inflammatory um, lung. Damage that's causing the, the hypoxia that we're seeing in these patients, but it's also 
damaging other organs. Um, so that's where we see the heart issues, that's where we're seeing um, kidney problems coming in. And um, there is also some talk about neurological concerns, but that's very, there's been a few case reports, there's nothing really um, substantial. Uh, the one interesting shift that we've seen is the anosia, so the loss of smell has actually been added to part of the um, criteria for consideration for testing, um, but they don't have a clear reason as to why they're losing their smell, because um, we're not exactly um, going to be taking samples of these patients' um, olfactory nerves to, to fix. They, they just can't, in the current situation, pin it down, but there's a few theories around how they may be um, not just peripheral nerve, cranial nerve involvement, but potentially um, involvement in the brain. But that is all very early phase um, ideas that are kind of coming out. So in our mild patients, um, that's most of our screening patients, they may have a variable level of function. They're likely close to their baseline, but they're going to be limited by fatigue and myalgia. Um, and if they need a PT intervention, it's more likely to be with comorbidities. Um, or that they were marginally coping in the community prior to admission, so um, a vulnerable um, community status. Um, so usually in those patients, what we expected is our PT interventions would be around assisting with facilitation of discharge from the hospital um, and focusing on falls risk reduction and treatment for comorbidities, and that's, and that's the, the group of what we're seeing. With the more moderate patients, we're seeing um, increased dyspnea. Uh, they may need assistance with sputum clearance. But these patients, it's most, more likely if they had chronic sputum production. So your patients with chronic bronchitis or maybe somebody with cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis. If they had secretions before and they had a superimposed COVID-19 um, infection, uh, they may need sputum clearance techniques earlier on. Uh, but our interventions will be focused on the management of dyspnea, uh, monitoring for sputum retention, and assessing the exercise tolerance. We would not be looking at jumping straight to a manual chest physio because of the concerns around uh, the inflammation that's in the lungs. And also from the perspective of if you can teach your patient to clear their secretions more independently, you don't necessarily need to be in the room when they're doing it. And that can help uh, reduce um, exposure and also increase sputum clearance from your patient because they're able to do it more independently. Um, in this group, we're considering using oscillating PET to help with clearance secretions. So that's a device like an acapella or an aerobica. Um, we're choosing that preferentially over a bubble pep system because with the water and the spray from the water, um, there's more likely an infection control risk, but with the dry devices, um, it's more controlled. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the very hot topic I can see in the uh, questions, the AGP questions. Uh, so we will be talking on that a little bit more in depth later on. Um, but PEP, oscillating PEP is something that can be considered to help assist with sputum clearance in patients that are having sputum retention. So not everyone, only the ones that are having sputum issues. 
So with our more severe patients, um, we are looking at these are the people that are either on high levels of oxygen, um, and we've even seen a shift in the way that we're approaching these patients from a medical perspective. So initially, we were being told um, very low thresholds to intubate. Patients over five liters are going to be intubated. Um, we are not going to do uh, OptiFlow, so the high-flow nasal cannulae. Uh, we're avoiding CPAP and BiPAP. Um, and then once they're intubated, they're going to be sedated and paralyzed. Um, and physio is not to be involved, as that was like our initial um, picture of how they were wanting to manage. They were wanting to limit the number of people in the room. They were wanting to limit people in and out. Um, so that was kind of part of the, the reasoning behind. And as we've um, evolved through this process, what we found is that um, the patients that get early mobility, and I'm going to frame early mobility. So we use a screening protocol where we're looking at the also acute lung injury protocol. And we're also seeing a shift in the way that they're ventilating the patients. They seem to be, because of this difference in compliance, they're using uh, lower peaks and they're shifting away from um, the conventional protective lung ventilation a little bit sooner. Uh, than they would previously. We want to see that the FiO2 is trending down. We're looking for patients that are tolerating repositioning in bed by nursing, um, and that the sedation is being weaned, and that they're paralytic that have been stopped. There's also some lab values that we're looking into. We're looking at their D-dimer. We're considering their lymphocyte counts, uh, the troponin, um, and also the lactase, lactase dehydrogenase. Um, those four are associated with a better outcome um, from a medical perspective. And in those patients, in discussion with the medical team, we have started doing mobility. And it has been well tolerated. Um, the patients are quite delirious uh, when they're being woken up. So there's definitely a, a benefit of mobility from that perspective. They also start to create secretions in that resolution phase and also associated with being ventilated for a long time. So what we actually found is patients that got up and had mobility um, were actually able to clear secretions better and uh, tolerated extubation better. So it was part of facilitating extubation. Uh, so we've, that's kind of been a shift over the last few weeks is actually getting involved um, earlier. We're also being involved in um, the proning. I see that that question came up. So yes, we are definitely proning patients. Um, and our team is helping with positioning, uh, problem solving, especially around like patients with limited range of motion in their neck. Uh, do we really want them to be all the way rotated uh, for extended periods of time? The swapping of the arm position to help with um, managing that, that neck range of motion. Uh, pressure, monitoring for pressure injuries as well. Um, what we're, so that's part of the, the ventilated patient management. And then as soon as they're extubated, um, we're starting generally on more active mobility. But I do want to say that we have had one ventilator patient that managed an active transfer, so a stand step transfer while ventilated. So, um, 
we are seeing a spectrum. They're not as dependent. Um, not all of them have been as that dependent. But all of these things that we've been talking about, the multi-system failure, uh, the types of medications that they're using, the sedatives, the paralytics, uh, the cytokine storm, all of these things actually put these patients at risk for critical illness, myopathy, and neuropathy. And that's the consensus that came, has come out. And, and as soon as I was reading about the clinical profiles of these patients, I was like, these people are going to have critical illness myopathy. And it is definitely what we're seeing from our first extubated patient. She was uh, minus three muscle strength initially on the day of extubation. And she was, she was completely independent and working um, and an active person prior to admission. Um, and what was really good to see is it was we're definitely seeing more of a myopathy picture and we haven't yet seen patients with neuropathy. Um, so they're responding really well to physio interventions and we're seeing steady progression uh, through their course. Um, so we're, we're definitely seeing a positive response to physio um, early-ish, early not early, as early as we do with other patients but um, earlier than we were initially anticipating. Um, and then looking at secretion clearance with those patients, um, looking at mobility as our primary way of mobilizing secretions, but we are considering manual chest physio in one of our patients at the moment because there are signs of secretion retention. They're quite far down the road. They've been ventilated for a long time. Um, so we... They, they're weighing up bronchoscopy, so we're going to try manual chest physio as a way to try and avoid bronchoscopy because when we look at, at risks of aerosol generation, um, a bronch would expose many more people in a, a more significant way um, than if we can manage to clear the patient's secretions with chest physio. Um, so that's the kind of picture that we are seeing and what we anticipated is kind of what we're, we've seen, but um, definitely we're hearing from the nurses and from the doctors on our team um, that there does seem to be a benefit of earlier physio interventions that was than what was originally anticipated. Great. Uh, thanks. Thanks for that, Amy. And then if I could, uh, just to turn it over to Jill and Simone to perhaps talk about what you and your physio physiotherapy colleagues are doing at Vancouver Coastal and in the community, just in terms of um, what treatments, uh, treatment approaches that you're using. I'll unmute myself so you don't watch my mouth moving and I'm not making yeah. any sound. Um, yeah, so what, um, you know, Amy was talking about in, in critical care, we're seeing much the same, you know, that, that the physio team is involved um, even in critical care, crit critical care, and it is a lot around that, you know, that early mobility piece and the assessment of what's actually safe and, and supporting the staff through that. Um, they, they are, yeah, proning as well, and I think someone had asked in the questions about proning in both, like, intubated and non-intubated um, populations, and we are definitely seeing and, and doing both, and we're seeing that in the critical care settings and the, the ward settings across um, the health authorities, so not just at, at VGH. 
Um, I'll speak more to kind of what we're seeing on the wards and when we're preparing for discharge. So it's it's weird on the wards. Like there's no getting around that sense that it's it's a little bit strange. Like you're there's a lot more chart checking, talking, screening, you know, even phone calls into the room because one of the big, you know, principles is trying to reduce um, the amount, you know, the opportunities for transmission and infection. And so there's a lot of screening that goes on before, um, you know, anyone's even entering a room. Um, so trying to minimize those those interactions, but also to pick up the people that that do need it, you know, to be able to say like, wait a minute, this is a, a woman who came in who was, you know, independent and, and functional and is now needing assist just to even sit up at the edge of the bed. Like that's someone that we need to get in and, and be involved with. So we've kind of got some questions that we're asking around, well, you know, how are they mobilizing? What's changed? What are they having trouble with? What is their, you know, progress been looking at? Or how's their, how have they been progressing? So in order to decide who to go in and see um, and just encouraging daily activity on the ward. So that idea that, you know, everybody should be getting up and moving. Everybody should be participating in care. So even if the therapists aren't going in to see every single patient, that doesn't mean that they're not moving. And we're, you know, we're lucky that overall that's been improving in general across the sites. And so it's not like we're introducing something new with that piece. Everyone has been helping with mobility of patients. So just really encouraging that. Um, for the people that we are seeing, again, yeah, we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing the ones that are worse. So we're seeing the, the general weakness, we're seeing the slow progression and the lack of endurance. And one of the things that um, has really been noted is their yeah their endurance and their their cardiac tolerance of the activity. I noticed one of the most popular questions was around oxygen saturation, and obviously we are monitoring that. and And really, it's just keeping them within their normal range. So we're watching both that they're in the you know mid to high 90s. We're watching for change with exertion. That's one of the big things. So it's you know looking at where they're starting, but then also looking at how they're responding to activity, but it's, yeah, you know, we're, we're aiming to keep them in the 90s, just like we would with really any other ill population. What we're really having to follow up on is, you know, their cardiac status and how are they tolerating that? You know, are they, is their heart rate getting too high? Are they, you know, feeling palpitations or arrhythmias? When they're monitored, it's really easy to see, but when they're on the ward, still following up, and one of the things that's been noted clinically is, after you've seen a patient, just checking back in after they've settled down, making sure they're actually, they're still feeling okay because they may feel the effects afterwards. So that's one of the things we've added is just a, a check-in after you've worked with someone. And again, it could be as simple as, you know, poking your head up to the window, asking the, the staff person that's going in next, um, calling the patient in the room just to, to check in. But that's something that we've been looking at. Um, not doing anything too complicated in terms of, you know, how we're assessing or measuring. It's that general strength, general mobility, looking at their, you know, using the Borg, the rating of perceived exertion, how hard they're working and keeping them in that moderate range, keeping them, if you're using the 10-point scale, close to a three so that they're not pushing too hard. Um, it's the same general principles as, you know, recovering from any sort of infectious illness that you're you know, you're not going into 
intense aerobic workouts. You're not trying to build up too quickly. You're, you're building up slowly. You're working in a, you know, a, a moderate range enough that they're, they're feeling it. And then they're, you know, a little bit tired after that's really, that's the magic of the prescription. It's nothing fancier than that. Um, but it is really strange. It's strange for the, the therapists, you know, having to go through all these steps before they even get close to the patient. It's strange for the patients when, you know, people are coming in and you can't even see who they are. So that sort of acknowledgement, and I think the patients are feeling a little bit starved for contact. And so they're appreciating any opportunities that they have to interact with someone. And so you're, you know, it's when you're in there, the, the conversation and the just the connection is really important. On discharge, um, really, like, these guys are, they tend to, they're not going home when they're better. They're going home when they're getting better and they're safe. And so, again, it's nothing magical with the discharge planning, but it is looking at, you know, what do they need to be safe at home? What do they need to be able to do to you know, get to their bathroom, what do they need to be able to do to get in their house? And again, having to be creative when you can't take someone out of the room to do the stairs, looking at things like, well, you know, can they do repeated sit to stands? Can they do squats? Like, can I assess whether or not I think they're going to be safe to go up a few stairs while still keeping them on the level and not bringing in any additional equipment? So those are sort of some of the the changes that we've been seeing, it's more around, you know, how we screen people. It's around making sure that they know not to push too hard, especially when they get home and they're, they're feeling good and, and wanting to, to push, making sure they're, they're knowing to, to keep it slow. And again, you know, as always, but really remembering that that, that point of connection and those interactions are going to be even more important and, and what you say, you know, has the chance to be taken to heart even more because maybe you're, you know, you're one of the few people that come in and, and talk to someone that day. So that's, yeah, sort of our, you know, on the ward to discharge perspective. Thanks, Joe. And then, uh, Simone, what are you, what are you seeing in the community right now? Yeah, so we're just starting to see and plan for discharges from acute care home. Um, and so other provinces, uh, other communities might be at different stages of kind of the trajectory of, you know, their future visit and, and discharge to community or discharge home. Same principle, so trying to limit the amount of people that have uh, contact with the client. So figuring out is it more important for uh, a nurse to do a home visit and can some of the skills that they have overlap with either, you know, physio or occupational therapy or respiratory therapy and can they do some of the screening techniques uh, or assessment and treatment techniques that we might typically do, but can it be given to one professional that is needs to go into the, the community or the home environment. We're also um, screening, so working with acute care sites. So when we think about um, equipment and discharge planning uh, and services to support them, we want to be able to support them so that they're not going to be readmitted back into hospital. Uh, and so those are also for our community patients that are at home that haven't gone into hospital, what can we do to support them at home to the best of our ability so that they are not going into the hospital and we're leaving those acute care beds uh, and um, eMERGE visits to a minimum to allow for the people that really need those beds to, to occupy them. 
uh, and need the services in the emergency department. Um, so again, we are thinking about um, what we're bringing into the home environment. Can it stay there? Uh, can we access um, uh, other family members? And we, can we access uh, other healthcare professionals to really understand the equipment that they need so that we're not um, sending in equipment or getting equipment picked up and brought into the environment and then it needs to be taken out and it can be contaminated and then we're re-putting in equipment. So being really mindful on our clinical reasoning process uh, and our communication, exercising all our communication avenues before we uh, interject with any type of uh, treatment option. When we're thinking about uh, maintaining function at home, we're thinking what can we use in the environment? We are um, trying to think about, well, we know that there is a cardiac involvement, uh, and if there is a handover from acute care screening, did they have cardiac in incidents along with the respiratory incidents? Um, and so what was their uh, experience in the acute care um, with COVID-19 so that we can kind of make sure that we are not missing any kind of red flags or precautions or contraindications with our treatment principles? Fatigue, um, we are starting to, you know, review the literature and think about uh, how um, these clients that are now hopefully safe at home, what is our exercise um, treatment parameter? So what can we do from an at-home exercise parameter? We are thinking about RPE on a 6 to 20 scale, keeping kind of exercise kind of within that 6 to 11 team, uh, um, uh, score on a 6 to 20 RPE keeping the board, you know, at a three to four on a, you know, a zero to 10 scale. Uh, keeping those things uh, simpler, knowing that we are also trying to think about the psychosocial approach that these individuals um, have experienced, um, you know, a pandemic trauma, same thing with their loved ones, that, uh, you know, they can't necessarily relate to other people that have gone through the experience. So thinking about the the emotional well-being of the caregivers and the household um, that is also living with the loved ones. And if they need home support, uh, figuring out the best uh, protection um, practices of home care that we might be recommending that needs to go in. Um, and then functionality, yes, uh, can we do some of our screening techniques using technology, using the phone versus going in, and can we think outside the box? So things like the 30-second, you know, sit-to-stand, or, you know, someone, uh, you know, nursing staff can go and do a timed-up-and-go versus going right to the stairs, knowing that they're being discharged maybe without having, you know, a stair screen. So um, those are important things. We're also thinking in, you know, potentially after they've been home, within a six- to eight-week period, can we start thinking, you know, the literature is showing us we can potentially start thinking of them as a pulmonary rehab patient population. So with that pulmonary rehab patient population or a chronic disease patient population, what are some parameters that we can um, utilize if they uh, can't go to an outpatient you know, pulmonary rehab setting? So what can we potentially be doing knowing that we're probably going to be um, looking at treatment options without potentially pulmonary function testing or other type of testing that they might have not had done because they're aerosol generating uh, procedures. So then we're kind of looking at, you know, what is, you know, either a two-minute or six-minute walk test telling us if we can even potentially do that? How can we look at, you know, peripheral saturation? 
uh, how can we um, still give some treatment parameters with that potential patient population if we are going to put them within that patient population um, without some of the um, medical testing that um, we typically might see with, um, with that uh, patient population that are attending kind of outpatient services. Um, so that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, what we are preparing for. We haven't seen a huge wave to community yet that has been discharged. Um, we're in the preparation phase, at least, you know, in, in Vancouver and the lower mainland. Other provinces uh, might very well be seeing more discharges at home that they're dealing with um, from a community care uh, perspective. In regards to oxygen therapy, um, it was one of the questions on Slido, and I know um, Amy and Jill talked about it. In one of the references that a lot of therapists around the world are using, the physiotherapy management for COVID-19 in the acute care hospital, and there were some questions in regards to mobilization and uh, desaturation with individuals on page 17. They do have some uh, literature references on oxygen therapy, so either patients presenting with severe respiratory distress or if they are stable, if they're pregnant, not pregnant, or if they have acute um, respiratory failure, kind of the target SpO2 values that you might want to keep them in with oxygen therapy. So we do have some resources to, to reference. Uh, I would want to say with the resources, there's stuff to supplement your clinical reasoning with what you are just in time assessing with that individual patient um, because we don't know enough about the trajectory of the disease um, and we don't know enough to have these huge bodies of, you know, randomized control trials, you know, double-blinded studies to, to be able to, you know, pull out pieces of information. So a lot of the resources that um, are out there and that we might be quoting uh, I would say, are to supplement, uh, hopefully, um, some well-educated clinical reasoning skills. So, so thanks for that, you three. Um, I think that's also, we'll get to some of the more specific uh, questions about treatment later in the Q&A, but that's a really nice segue to the next piece, which is where we want to touch on um, what are, because there's a, a huge wealth of resources that are coming out, so we just want to touch on what are some of the resources, what are some of the good resources, and where to go to access them. So I think Simone and Jill, you guys are gonna talk to this one. Yeah, I can start, Jill. Yep. Okay. So there are resources. I'll let Jill talk about uh, more um, in the public setting how we're mobilizing as, as therapists in regards to sharing information uh, and you know looking at the literature and uh, questioning it um, and uh, figuring out what we can and cannot use or what's applicable. Um, in, and that's continually changing. From a national perspective, um, as the chair of the Cardi Rest Division, I don't think um, our small and mighty division has gotten so many questions over the last few weeks, um, which uh, warms my heart, but is also um, kind of saddens my heart because it, it's within a, within a pandemic. So I can say that um, We've been working with uh, clinical resource therapists, expert, experts, uh, senior therapists, researchers. Um, we've been connected with many different organizations and groups of individuals across the country uh, trying to uh, work on an education uh, platform and plan for members and non-members. So we recognize that it's important to get that information out to, to everyone. 
in order that they can use it to, to the best of their ability. So um, uh, kind of entry-level practice, uh, questions, concerns um, that we have done previous webinars, previous to COVID-19, uh, have been opened up on the CPA's website. So if you go to CPA's COVID-19 website, those have been opened up just to everyone. Uh, they're on working with mechanical ventilation, uh, mechanically ventilated patients in the ICU, how to look at a chest X-ray, how to interpret arterial blood gases. Um, those are some of the, the basics that, that we've covered in previous webinars. Um, also, that what I just cited, uh, international guidelines that um, we endorse, the CPA and other uh, associations around the world have endorsed that were put together in a very short time frame. Uh, the Canadian research lead was Michelle Coe from McMaster University um, that uh, helped um, put those guidelines together. That's something else that's also posted um, on the COVID-19 CPA website, uh, along with other resources that uh, Health Canada has put out, uh, resources from other provinces, along with other educational resources that are in Australia and America um, and Great Britain have put together for their therapists. Um, and we do have a little bit of um, uh, an addendum to say, you know, when you're looking at resources um, that other associations and colleges organizations have put together for their country's therapists, just please keep in mind scope of practice differs province to province, country to country. So definitely use, you know, your clinical reasoning when you are looking at these kind of internationally based or country specific guidelines just like you would um, when looking at uh, a journal article or a research article. Uh, what is coming is um, we are working on uh, uh, webinars on things like secretion clearance, uh, on proning, uh, on having a webinar um, from resource therapists on uh, ECMO, uh, putting together a resource on the state mobilization tool that uh, came out, um, I think, five or six years ago. So we're slowly putting together other resources, um, and we are um, asking uh, members to email us on things that they would like information on so that we are targeting um, information that therapists uh, would like. Um, and that's continually being updated uh, daily and weekly by CPA head office. Um, so you can go to the main CPA website, um, and the link is uh, COVID-19, and then a lot of this is uh, under resources. Um, and then uh, UBC, obviously, um, at UBC uh, for continuing professional development. I'll let uh, Jonathan talk a little bit about um, how we're uh, potentially going to be putting on a couple of more webinars. But um, yeah, I would say that from the, the Canadian Physio Association, I think I covered off most of the, the education stuff. And Jonathan, you don't have to try to reference all the links that I'll talk about because I do have a list and it, it will be <laughs> available afterwards. I see him trying to put in the, the links to the things that Simone was talking about. So yeah, I'll start out with kind of the, um, I guess the some more of the broader resources that are going to be accessible to anyone regardless of, you know, where you are um, in the country or where you're working. So like Simone said, the, the Canadian Physiotherapy Association links that the World Congress of Physiotherapy also has a, a long list of, of recommendations. There's a couple um, nice sites that actually are like just, they're curating references. And so um, 
they've got, you know, there's one, if anyone follows the ICU rehab team from um, Johns Hopkins, they've got a, a living document that's about 27 pages long at this point. So it's a little bit intimidating, but it's got it's divided up into all sorts of sections, all kinds of interesting things. There's the, the Rehab Care Alliance out in Ontario that's got some good resources. So there's a lot of different people that are curating lists that are, are quite helpful. And one of the things that's reassuring is as you look at them all, there's a lot of things that kind of come to the top in each. So it's not like each list is completely different. They're very, they're very similar in terms of, you know, there's things like the, the international guidelines and some of the WHO recommendations that are, you'll find them everywhere. So it's not like each list is a, a completely different thing. You'll, you'll find a lot of the, the resources and it's sometimes it's just what's your favorite format of the, the list. So those are out there and there's, um, you know, there's a site out of Ireland that is a really great um, synthesis of up and coming evidence. And so again, links to, you know, things through the Lancet, Lancet and, and the um, other journals where they're, they're pulling it all in. So it's just really easily accessible uh, without having to do a lot of big searches. There's also um, another one that's out there that's looking at um, what do we still want to know? And um, again, it's it's a sort of a living document that's looking at, well, what are the rehab questions that are outstanding? And there's a lot of really good questions there. The answers aren't there yet, but they've been identified as research questions. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll have that, you guys will have access to the, the long list that I'm, um, that I'm referring to. Again, none of them are, like Simone said, you know, you're using your own judgment with what you're finding useful. And I'm not endorsing this collection of lists. I'm just saying, I am looking at this collection of lists. You know, the, the content varies, again, you know, depending on um, the country and, and where it's coming from, but a lot of useful information there. If you're within BC and working for a health authority, there's a few other things that um, you can access. So, um, and if you're in a hospital, you will be working for a health authority. So as a, as a province, we've come together, there's representatives from all the different health authorities that are, again, sharing resources and sharing a lot of these same links, like as we're, as we're finding them as things are getting published. We're also sharing um, resources internally, like the guidelines that different um, authorities are coming up with are just our cheat sheets for, for staff. Um, there's a few courses that are available on the, the Learning Hub. So again, if you're a health authority employee and you um, have access to the Learning Hub, there's a couple different, there's a basic respiratory um, anatomy and physiology refresher. There's a basic um, secretion clearance refresher. So there's a couple different online courses that are available. And again, if you're, you know, if you're in a health authority, make sure that you are finding who it is, whether it's, you know, you have an educator, whether it's a practice lead, whether it's your site supervisor, find your way up the chain because there is someone in your authority who is connected provincially and they're trying to get the information out to people who are interested and people who, who are expressing a need. But if you're, if you're curious and you think, I, I haven't actually heard of any of this, you can, you can reach out. We're working, you know, both with people who are already working in acute and critical care set settings and are really interested in the, the kind of the, the detail of what's going on, but we're also working to support therapists who maybe have not been in acute, have been in community, have just, you know, are just coming into the, the health authority and getting them more comfortable with the acute skills. So there's support kind of for both of those 
groups. So again, just reaching out like there's whoever it is that you normally go to with questions at work, ask them and, and find your way up the chain because everyone's got a slightly different framework. But yes, if you're at Vancouver Coastal, ask me. If you're, you know, in Fraser, ask Amy or the person who can connect you to Amy. Like we we really are willing to to be there and help direct things as well. So I've also gotten a lot of questions from past students um, and people that are in remote areas um, that are just kind of navigating and trying to find someone that they can talk to about resources. So don't hesitate to, to reach out. You know, I definitely haven't minded, you know, the questions coming from the role that I play at the university or from uh, the cardiorespiratory division. All of us are quite busy, so sometimes we can't answer right away, um, but we are doing our best during this time to make sure that the resources do get out there. Yeah, and it's the whole small, work, small world network sort of thing, right? That's even where a lot of the provincial networking started from is I know them from this and they know me from that and they know that person up there and that's what's, what's brought us together. So there is a, you know, there's a friendliness to it as well that, um, yeah, hopefully you feel like you can reach out. Great. Thanks for overviewing that, guys, and for making yourselves available uh, to help. Much obviously, much appreciated. Um, I think one of the other big, big questions that we're getting a lot of is around the PPE, the personal protective equipment piece. And I know Amy, you guys have sort of gone through a bit of a decision-making model, and you've implemented something along those lines. Maybe if you could speak to that, please. Yeah. So it's a very hot topic, <laughs> and I can see that it's come up in the questions as well. Uh, so part of why it's a hot topic is when we look at the health authorities um, definition of AGMP, certainly from a Fraser health perspective and from Vancouver Coastal as well, case physiotherapy and, and physiotherapy techniques are not specifically mentioned in the, the AGMP um, decision-making tools. So it brings and then when we look at the actual CPA document that we've been referencing uh, that came from an international body, they're, they're talking there about um, mobility and chest physiotherapy being considerations for an N95. So we've been having a lot of discussions in the background and um, really trying to balance, um, obviously, the need to preserve PPE, but also making sure that we're keeping staff safe. Uh, because we don't want to be sending people in um, in unsafe circumstances. So um, a lot of this has been a combination of not only discussions, but uh, literature reviews, um, and then also consultation within the health authorities and uh, the infection control practitioners also um, weighing in. So it, it, it comes down to one big topic for me, and, and, and that is, is what is an airborne pathogen? So is COVID-19 airborne? And from what we're seeing, the answer is no. For it to be airborne, you need to have really small particles and transmission over air and space. So those small particles um, being able to, to transmit and affect other people without even close contact. And, and the answers that are coming out are no. Um, when we look at the definition of what is droplet, what is airborne, um, a lot of that, those definitions are, are man-made. We've said, okay, at 
five microns at five micrometers, uh, that's the cutoff. So it's, it's almost an artificially um, imposed definition, but um, we need that to kind of navigate our way through. When we look at the difference between a surgical mask and an N95, that's where the droplet uh, particle size makes a difference. Um, so N95 masks are more useful for uh, the smaller particles and um, the normal face masks, the surgical masks are, they still filter pretty small particles, but it's where you get the difference between a droplet and an aerosol. That's where. Um, and some of the evidence that's coming out is that potentially COVID-19 and uh, influenza actually is a mixture of um, particle sizes. So you have large droplets, but you may also have this um, smaller cloud of small particles. So an aerosol generating procedure is a procedure, or AGMP, is a procedure that increases the amount of those particles being produced. So from a truly class, and when you look at the literature that's out there, we have these real world situations. So when we look at um, staff risk, which healthcare professionals are catching these diseases, and it starts with the SARS, uh, the first coronavirus, and then now um, what can we, through MERS, the Middle East Respiratory, and then now to the COVID-19. What, what, what do we know about transmission early on and how can we help protect healthcare professionals in the future? So from an aerosol generating procedure, the highest risk procedure is intubation. Intubation, intubation, intubation. But the question isn't, it's not that it necessarily generates a huge amount of tiny particles that are everywhere. The problem is actually that they're right there looking down a patient's throat and it's there in their face, so there's prolonged exposure, close exposure of this, this cloud of smaller particles. Um, when we look at um, chest physiotherapy, what the evidence is saying is that it increases the amount of large particles that are being generated. So those larger than 10, and, and the evidence is, is, is showing that. But what we can't rule out is that that pocket, that cloud of smaller particles may still be around the patient. Um, so that's part of what's confounding our response to, um, it's not necessarily just the cough itself, because uh, a cough increases large particle generation. Um, it's being in close contact with patients for extremely long periods and not being able to use respiratory etiquette to be able to position yourself outside of the, the explosion zone. <laughs> so um, that's kind of what's influenced our, our decision making. Uh, but also realizing that we don't want to use up the supply of N95. We want to make sure that um, they're available uh, for sustained use. Um, and, and what are the other strategies that we can use to get around it? So teaching your patient independent techniques that they can do when you're outside of the room. Even little strategies like that can influence it. Um, so the first kind of question is, is your patient COVID-19 positive? Yes or unknown, being tested or no? 
If it's no, you're following the poster precautions um, and the standard precautions based on your health authority. Um, and right now in Fraser Health, that's a face mask and eye protection for all patients, um, considering that there is potentially community spread. Um, if it's not known, the next question is, has the AGMP sign been posted? So that's going to cover you in critical care. All of our ventilated patients are considered undergoing an AGMP for the duration of ventilation. Patients that are on OptiFlow, uh, nasal cannulae, um, I touched on it briefly saying initially we were not doing it, but now we are. And there's actually evidence that says that the risk of aerosolization is actually lower than previously anticipated because the heat and humidity in the droplets actually makes them bigger and more likely to fall out. So we actually see less small particle generation and more large particle generation with um, the OptiFlow uh, than was previously anticipated. So we are seeing a shift towards that. Um, but as a standard precaution on our COVID units, all patients, intubated or not, are being uh, seen with an, an AGMP. Um, so that includes that immediate post-extubation period. What we do have is the flexibility is of reusable N95 respirators. That's what we have at, at Surrey Memorial Hospital, and my understanding is BGH does as well. So that's also going to influence the decision-making around it. Uh, but that's in a critical care setting where the AGMP sign has been posted for the patient. So as soon as you see that, you're going to go with an N95. That's the direction that they're giving you. And obviously, eye protection. Uh, gown and gloves. The next question, if you don't see an AGMP sign uh, posted, is, is this patient likely to be productive? Um, and is the focus of my intervention to mobilize these secretions? And um, if your patient is non-productive and has that dry cough, you don't need to use an N95 mask. Using a standard um, surgical mask is sufficient. If you your patient is productive, so especially post, just in that time post-extubation when they have secretions from being intubated or somebody that has long-term secretion retention issues. Um, and, am I going in there with the intention? Am I doing mobility with the intention of improving air entry? Am I doing active cycle of breathing to clear those secretions? Am I going to be asking them to take active big breaths with the intention of clearing secretions. If your answer is yes, you may want to consider uh, wearing an N95 mask. Um, and certainly, if they're not readily available, having a discussion with your team about the risks um, of the procedure and whether it is actually necessary to do it. Does this, is uterine retention actually affecting the patient's uh, current status? Is it going to influence the outcome um, and what's the risk? Is it something I can teach the patient and then leave the room for them to actually do it? Uh, so how, how can we work around? Can I position myself to the side of the patient, getting them to cough away from me? Um, the other question that we added into our decision tree is how dependent is the patient? So if you have a highly productive patient with oral secretions, difficulty managing oral secretions, they're known to be productive. They um, may have been productive, but 
more dry. If you know that you're going to be super close from them and super close, so in that one meter, that one meter diameter is what they, they're talking about. Um, so if you know that you're going to be really close and maintaining respiratory etiquette is going to be difficult, um, you may also want to consider an N95 in that situation as well. But again, it's a discussion with your team um, and your local um, guidelines. Um, and then also the risk versus benefit of being in that situation. Are there other strategies that we can use to help reduce that risk? And I think, you know, one of the things that makes it so tricky and, and we don't have a, you know, a, a firm resounding answer is that there is, you know, there's a lot of evidence. There's, it's not all conclusive. There's a lot of, you know, as I've been diving into it, there's a lot of like guidelines where the summary is, well, this is what we think. And so it's, it's hard and, and decisions are being made around resource management and decisions are being made around risk. And I think, you know, what Amy was saying around what is the, you know, the, the risk benefit, if you get down to that situation where you feel it's questionable, well, you know, yeah, what is the, the need of the patient? What is the risk to you? And, and have that, have that discussion. And we're, we're encouraging staff to have that discussion on a regular basis. The other thing that we're talking about is also having um, patients, if they're able, wear a surgical mask because that's just like when we're talking about it in the community, it's one more way to, to stop the, the spread. You know, if they're coughing into a mask and the majority of those droplets are, are hitting the mask before they're having the chance to break up and spread or they're, they're being, more of them are being captured, it's, it's obviously lessening the risk. And as we were talking about this um, beforehand as well, one of my coworkers was pointing out as well that, you know, if you're looking at the, the numbers um, in Canada around, you know, healthcare workers being infected in the workplace is very low. So it's something that we're doing is, is working, which I find reassuring. I hate not being able to have an answer that I can just hand to you and say, this is the answer. This is the list. And because it's really disconcerting when the list varies from place to place and the answer varies from place to place. But I think that, yeah, you know, as we're seeing the reasoning behind that is it's, it's still it's one of those evolving topics. And I think everyone is, is doing their best to look out for, you know, the, the staff and look out for the patients and, it becomes a conversation. It's just like when we were in school, we were like, but I want the answer. Like, what do I need to know for the test? And unfortunately, the answer is, you know, well, based on the situation and your clinical reasoning. So it's, yeah, I apologize if you've sat here for the last hour just waiting for the answer. And um, we're... And I think the only thing that I would add is I would, for those smaller sites that, um, you know, you're a smaller physio team, uh, and you're trying to manage, you know, potentially COVID-19 patients coming in or, you know, helping out other hospitals or sites that may or may not be um, overwhelmed is to, is the advocacy piece. So, you know, a lot of times it's just the infection control personnel that are, you know, looking at the techniques or looking at the scope of practice and they aren't wearing a physio hat. They are coming from a different role. They may understand the physiology or the equipment but they don't necessarily know what it is that they're doing. So really advocating and educating those individuals that are making those decisions in regards to what 
uh, PPE we need to wear with uh, whatever procedures that we're assessment techniques or treatment techniques that we're doing. So, and then able to, to be able to do that, you need to go back to what's going on with the technique. What am I doing? What is the physiology with the technique? What am I asking them to do? What are the, what are the lungs doing? What, you know, is it lower respiratory? Is it upper respiratory? How much force is being generated? Um, and so for that, it's kind of going back to some of your entry level skills and knowledge uh, and looking at, you know, what do the techniques do to be able to uh, advocate for your profession and your techniques to the people that don't necessarily wear a physio hat. And I can reassure you too that that advocacy is taking place at a provincial level, like across health authorities, across sites. Infection control departments are very tired of us. <laughs> but what about, but have you thought about, and did you know, so it's in, in, and it's an ongoing discussion as well. So, you know, stay tuned, I guess, but um, yeah, stay tuned and wash your hands. So, uh, thanks for that, guys. I think just in the interest of time, we're going to dive yeah. into the questions section here. So if you hadn't had a chance to go into Slido to up like any of the questions, uh, now is your opportunity. So we're going to start with one on the top. Uh, Simone did touch upon this with, I think, page 17 of the guidelines. But what is a safe SpO2 range that should be maintained when mobilizing with patients? And how quickly have you seen these patients desaturate? Yeah, so page 17 of the, you know, the guideline that is kind of being used quite a bit talks about SPO2 from an acute care perspective. So those are the physiotherapy management for COVID-19 in the acute hospital setting. And then from a community setting, um, we're typically uh, wearing the hat that they are, you know, chronic disease or, you know, one a typical pulmonary rehab patient population if they require oxygen therapy. So we're trying to keep their um, fat, you know, above 88, 90, uh, you know, below 96. Um, uh, and then, you know, obviously from an acute care pers or community perspective, uh, our main focus is trying to use nasal prongs as, as the main form of oxygen therapy, but also using the techniques of breathing exercises and things like uh, SOS for SOB and positioning strategies to create an environment where um, they might not, they can control their uh, uh, dyspnea uh, that they're experiencing, and then also uh, using things like RPE and the board scale of breathlessness and relating it to activities of daily living uh, and general mobility and ambulation um, and energy conservation techniques. And then I'll let Amy and Joe touch on kind of more yeah, of the acute care. I think, I mean, the only the thing that I'd add sort of for that middle ground is really just watching their response because it doesn't so much matter that they're at 93%. It matters that they started at 94% and now they're at 93%. And you can say, yeah, that's that's pretty good versus if they started at 99 and they've suddenly dropped down to 93, that is a warning sign. So it's yeah. both the absolute number and the change depending on them. And I think with yeah. the cardiac involvement, that's why in the community, uh, the patients that we have seen being discharged, we're screening and asking about that cardiac involvement because are we supporting an oxygen, from an oxygen therapy standpoint, um, you know, a, a discharged cardiac patient. And then just also recognizing that this is an issue, not necessarily, they may have 
um, like atelectasis is on top of, especially um, post-extubation, that it's a primarily an issue of oxygen getting into the bloodstream uh, when we see an acute lung injury. So it is also acceptable to increase the amount of oxygen that they're getting uh, to help facilitate that mobility. But in general, they've certainly from a ventilated patient perspective, um, they improve their saturations once in that upright position, um, but it's monitoring the tolerance and also backing off from the patients that aren't tolerating it. Great, thanks guys. So the next two um, questions we're going to go to is, can you speak to using standard breathing exercises with COVID patients, such as first lip breathing, active cycle breathing, et cetera, and then how well are these interventions being tolerated? So we've, we've chatted a little bit about them already. Um, they're actually being tolerated quite well. Um, the other thing that I would add in there is positions of breathlessness, so like forward leaning um, and um, a threat from an um, active cycle of breathing, you would be trying to teach them puffing uh, to be done when you're not necessarily in the room. So that's one of the strategies you can employ. Um, and then the other one is the facilitation of lateral costal expansion, so with three-second holds to try and help open up the lungs um, in that acute period post-extubation. But just recognizing that we have two situations. So we have patients pre-intubation um, that are acutely deteriorating, and we would handle them differently to somebody that's further down the line and on that improvement upswing. Um, so we wouldn't necessarily get involved um, when they're acutely deteriorating. Somebody further down the line asks about the awake proning, and we are working um, on a protocol around that. We're um, collaborating with Vancouver Coastal. Um, there is evidence around it, and it's more from a BQ matching perspective, so matching the perfusion to the ventilation. Um, we've also used it in some of the patients post-extubation, but it's a very early... Um, an early technique that we're using, and we're working with the physician group to try and firm up details around it. I wouldn't say it's, it's not necessarily stopping people from being intubated, uh, but it is helping to improve the oxygenation of, of those moderate patients that um, can avoid intubation. But we have to tread very, very lightly because we don't want to be they're trying to avoid emergent intubation. They are trying to do it under controlled situations. Um, so any time that we are trying the awake proning in pre-intubation patients, it's in discussion um, with the physician group and also with really clear guidelines as to if they're not tolerating to alert the team to, to changes that have been noted. And from a positioning standpoint in the community, thinking about um, the level of orthopnea they may have, so the, the nighttime uh, breathlessness, specifically knowing that sleep is going to play into the energy levels that they have during the day, knowing that if they have a good sleep, then things that take a lot of energy, they can do first thing in the morning. But if they're not having a good sleep, we have that positioning education to either you know change the, the amount of pillows, change the position, uh, you know, uh, prescribe a wedge cushion, something like that, that can support them to have a good night's sleep so that they have the amount of energy that they need to do to be able to do their activities of daily living and not um, lean on support from friends and family that are allowing more people to come into their home environment and potentially be at risk for, for infection. Great. 
So uh, sleep and its role to play with positioning and energy conservation is um, a big uh, piece to the puzzle with our, our community uh, individuals, whether they've been in hospital or not. And someone asked as well, like, do breathing exercises help the patient recover faster? And it's not so much that it, it helps with the recovery. The recovery is uh, a process. You know, all the care we're providing is is supportive care to kind of help them be as supportive as they can while their body is healing. But, you know, what, like what Amy touched on, the, the breathing exercises are for improving oxygenation, which is going to help with with healing and recovery and energy for that. It's going to help manage breathlessness. So both, you know, physically manage the breathlessness and the anxiety that comes along with shortness of breath. So there, it's not that it's going to speed up their recovery, but it's, it's giving them tools to enhance their recovery more than anything. And on a totally geeky note, Simone, when you were saying, you know, it warmed your heart, people are asking about cardio rest. There was a uh, article, like a thing on Global News about proning the other day, both in like ICUs and like home exercises, like how to lay on your tummy and why it helps you breathe better. And I like, again, you know, I'm like, oh, just like warms my heart. But again, it's, it is the the situation that, you know, that it's, you're finding it is, is sad, but it's like, yes, yes. It's not just an obscure thing that I teach once a year. We're also thinking about the um, uh, equipment prescription and uh, having prophylactic equipment prescription. So they're not necessarily using a walker um, because uh, they have, you know, increased falls risk because of decreased leg strength, but they are going to be using a walker to energy conserve uh, and prevent, um, you know, any respiratory distress. Uh, being able to sit down and get into that, you know, forward-leaning position to, you know, reverse your accessory muscles and kind of, you know, help the diaphragm exert. So um, thinking more from a prevention standpoint, um, uh, preventing kind of any respiratory distress issues, knowing that uh, a lot of the elderly that are getting sick have those comorbidities, uh, and some of those comorbidities are um, the cardiac and lung uh, pathologies. Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, anything else on that just before I pull? No? We could, we could uh, be here all night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can get to some more boy. questions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So I think one of the ones, where did it go here? I think one of the ones that uh, I'm really curious about, actually, is what are some recommendations for working with high-risk clients who are delirious? Is that something that um, has started to kind of, I think, percolate a lot in a lot more conversations and any strategies to work with these individuals while minimizing contact? There are actually some really lovely um, recommendations from sort of the long-term care setting. So, I mean, in an acute care setting, yes, you know, it's the same protocol. If you're working with someone delirious, you're going to be, A, taking all the precautions so that um, you are protected because if you're, you know, if it's acute care, they're dependent to right in there. It's it's hard to avoid. But in there's a lot of interesting stuff in long-term care around like trying to both keep them in an environment where they can wander, but have that environment be safe and looking at the other things that might be playing in, looking at how do you allow them that freedom of movement that might actually, you know, 
bring down the behavior while still keeping everyone else safe. So a lot at looking at, well, where people actually physically are, how the space is set up, using those same diversions that we use, you know, people with dementia to try to, to keep them in, in one place. And just that ethical piece of, you know, where does the, the role for restraint lie versus where does the role for freedom of movement and that pyramid of decision-making, you know, how is it affecting people? How is it affecting the, the resident and the, the people around them? So yeah, there's no like one right answer, but it's an interesting perspective. From a critical care perspective, it's that earlier mobility. So uh, starting to mobilize them just before they're ready to excubate because uh, it helps in that orientation process. We're trying to create routines with them. It's asking orientation questions. It's improving natural light. So we're opening the window, not opening the window, but opening the blinds <laughs> while we're in the rooms. Um, it's engaging them. It's, as Jill was saying, we may be the only with very limited contact and we all look like aliens. Um, so just recognizing, being like, hey, you're in hospital, um, and it's the way that we talk and engage with them and well, as well, recognizing that we're, we're not just there as, it's not just the physical intervention, but it's the, the social intervention of, of being in the room um, and connecting. And even part of my experience is we don't know what their say, baseline mobility is, and then I'm having to phone because there's no visitors, so we phone and talk to the family members, and we're very... Um, careful about when we do that because we're not going to do it. Oh, they've just been intubated. Oh, what was their capability status? You can't visit, and they're going to ask all the questions that we're not really going to talk about. But when we do, they always have been saying, "Please tell them that we're thinking of them," or we're actually passing on messages from the family um, after those kind of connections. So we even have a role to play in that. Um, and the other thing we have is. TVs at my hospital <laughs> in our new tower. They've made um, TV accessible for all the patients. They used to have to pay for it, and for this period, they've made it uh, through the foundation available. So even something as simple as being like, hey, this is how the TV works, turning it on um, and creating some sound and engagement for them is one of our other strategies we're using. That's great. I think everyone's well-versed on Netflix right now, or certainly all of us that are at home. So a little Tiger King for the patients, too, is a good thing. Um, so just switching gears a little here, there was actually the question of um, what are the ethical implications of exposing physiotherapy students to an environment? I know, Jill, you, had a, you, know, you have a role in working with students within Coastal, so maybe if you could touch on that. Yeah, and I mean, I think Simone can probably speak to it, too, from a university standpoint, but I mean, in the first place, the decision was, no, I think we don't want to. And that's why all the placements were, were halted so that it could be looked at. Um, there is actually, interestingly enough, a COVID-19 ethical decision-making framework um, from the, the provincial government. And really, it's looking at that, um, you know, what are the, who's, who's affected by the decision? It's not just the, the students, it's their families, it's their future colleagues, it's there's a, a large you know group of people when we say okay students are not on placement, it affects more than just the students and whether or not they're they're going to graduate. So there's you know the different stakeholders, there's the different like you know the different values in terms of well 
they talk about like the first thing, the first priority in, in pandemic decision making is, you know, not causing any harm and preventing, um, yeah, preventing harm. Still, the respect factor and the fairness, and I like this, everyone matters equally, but not everyone may be treated the same. And so it's <laughs> an interesting statement, but yeah, it's looking at, well, okay, what are what are all the, the factors? And I think it really, you know, it will come down to, well, what is the, the risk to students of exposure? What is the risk to the system and to the population at large if all of a sudden, not just physio students, but any students, like if we're lacking our normal influx of new practitioners, what is the, the influence there? And so there's there's going to be a lot of different variables to look at. And it's it may or may not be a one-size-fits-all answer. We may look at certain areas that are low risk, both to students and clients. That might be where the introduction starts, you know, not long-term care because We've seen those wildfires, maybe not critical care because it's the, you know, the center of the storm. We'll be looking at a lot of different factors as to where and when people come back. So again, it's when the question has ethics in it, it's it's never going to be a yes no answer either. But yeah, there's there's a lot of different things that we are considering. The other thing to consider is it's not only from a student perspective, but the impact on staff. And uh, part of that early phase, we actually had to say, we, we need to not have students here right now because we're not able to give them the time and energy and effort that they need. Yeah. We need to be focusing then on what is our practice, what is changing and the dynamics of the situation. Um, so that certainly weighed in heavily in the, the early stages of those decisions that were made, being made. Great. Thanks, guys. And then, so one of the other, and it's popped up in a few questions mm -hmm. here, is uh, with respect to patients as they transition into rehab centers, uh, community, or even into the private practice. And I'm going to use this as uh, the shameless plug point because we're hoping in the near future to put on a second webinar effectively with today's webinar dealing more so with the hospitalized COVID-19 patient, and then part two dealing with well, what do we do with that patient as they transition out of the hospital? So stay tuned on that part. I know we've got just a few I minutes. Oh, I just wanted to add one little note on that point. There's a question about um, uh, rehab units and what mm -hmm. are they doing to prepare. What we're finding is that by the time the patients get to that point, they're actually testing negative. Um, so it's not actually impacting um, the rehab units from a preparation. They're tending to the, the ones that have come through critical care, they're, they're tending to be negative, testing negative by the time we, we would be looking at considerations like that. So it's, it's, it's interesting we're monitoring that situation, but certainly most of the rehab is being done in the acute phase. Um, and most of all of us so far from sorry have transitioned home. Um, that we have also seen patients transition to other units from the COVID units uh, because they've tested negative. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. And then just with the last uh, last few minutes here, I know we're keeping people at, for the full 90. If the three of you had, uh, no, no, that's it's great information. Thank you. If the three of you had any clinical pearls that we didn't have a chance to touch on already, maybe if we could just share, share a couple of those. 
I think uh, I'll, I'll start. Uh, I think my clinical pearl is um, you probably know more than uh, you think you know. So even if you haven't been working in more of you know acute care um, setting, uh, and maybe you're asking to you know be upskilled to move to a new unit or be redeployed or uh, something, you know, you do know more than, than you think you know. So go back to, you know, those entry-level skills that uh, you think you might not not remember. Uh, my other pearl is really, um, for myself, uh, you know, being a clinician and an educator um, and trying to answer questions and kind of be the chair of the cardiac division is really thinking about my physiology. So what is the physiology of COVID-19? What is the physiological response to individuals? What is that individual, um, how are they responding? What organs are involved? And how does that implicate my assessment and treatment skills? Uh, and then also with the layer of um, please use your clinical reasoning, please be safe, um, and uh, take the time to do a thoughtful process um, while um, trying to be mindful of the patient's safety and your safety and of safety of others, but go back to your physiology because um, uh, that is a great starting point in, in reviewing how we can uh, help with the, uh, this patient population. I'm just looking at the questions as they roll through and someone has asked, is there a role for incentive spirometry? No. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> I, it's a little bit of an inside joke is why I'm laughing, but no, no, the answer is no. Um, and um, someone also has asked about the demi, Amy. So I think you put yes. that question in there. Amy's using the demi for whoever asked yes. that question. Um, so we're using it to just monitor uh, because that's. Uh, I think there's also a question about what are we looking at research-wise, and and there's a lot of medical research, and there isn't much from a physio perspective. Uh, so we're actually looking to ourselves as the the people that are seeing these patients, um, and we're considering what our next steps are, and that's where we're using the DEMI is um, integrating into our assessments at this point, so that if we were to do um, quality of life studies or um, what is the function of patients post-critical care admission, uh, we have our, our commissure embedded, and that's potentially something that students can get involved with from a more remote section. They could be looking at the data, so uh, we just kind of embedded it um, to to get going. Simone stole one of my pearls, which is, oh, yes, you yeah. know more than you, you think you do. There's so much of this that is, is really like the basic rehab principles are the same. You know those things. And for me, what has been just really amazing has been seeing the physio community come together, like seeing the connections that have just blossomed. I was literally sitting at my desk in the morning thinking, well, actually, no, it was the, that evening I was going to bed thinking like, oh, we got to look at some guidelines. we got to look at like pulling some of this stuff together. We've got all these questions. And literally the next morning I woke up to an email in my inbox saying, hey, look at these newly minted international guidelines. <laughs> so, so it's lovely to see worldwide the, the community. And, you know, we're, we're doing a really good job at looking out for each other. We're doing an amazing job at looking after our patients we do need to remember to look after ourselves. And that's not just what mask we're wearing. It's, you know, physically all the rest of the PPE that we're wearing. It's washing our hands. It's getting that rest and, and taking that step back that we, when we need to. And, 
And remembering too, when we get caught up in, and I have to remind myself of this, when I get caught up in the anxiety around the things that don't have answers, it's everyone is trying to do their best and they're doing their best with the information that they have on hand. And as that information changes and as things change, like we're going to keep trying to do our best and, and, and things will shift. But but everybody is, you know, from the, the top down and the bottom up, we're, we're all trying to look out for each other. So that's been really amazing to, to see that in practice. I've got a neat view into kind of different areas from, from where I sit. And, and that really is the, the theme that's, that's consistently come across. So makes me proud. <laughs> yeah, all the same thing. You, you've, you've got your tools, you've got all your little tool baskets. And as long as you, you know what you can achieve with each treatment technique, if you can get back to those basics, you can apply it to, to any situation. Um, and that look after yourself is really important as well. And, and when I'm really feeling overwhelmed with, with all this change, and I always just take that deep breath and that step back into my, my centering is we have so much to bring to the situation and making people's lives better. And I'm really proud to be part of the physio profession. Thanks for joining us. And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis spelled M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes.
This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 